less than eight kilometres from the lowest point on the surface of the earth, on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, rises some rugged sandstone mountains, the hills of Moab. Good cattle country there, John? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's much good for anything, really. Um, they're on the verge of being desert. They have an annual rainfall of, of only 100 millimetres or four inches. And in these hills, even today, can be found the remains of a fortress palace which had been built by King Herod. This palace is called Macarus, and it was, wasn't only a palace, it was also a jail. And in its dungeons at the time could be found the first prophet that Israel had heard for more than 400 years. Right? There was a period where, where prophet after prophet after prophet had been sent to Israel. But then there was silence for 400 years until along came John the Baptist. You see, and, and John the Baptist was then put into prison himself. Prophets aren't very popular people because they don't, they, I guess their, um, their job isn't to tell people what's popular. The job of a prophet is to tell people what God is saying. And that's why John the Baptist had been taken from his freedom out in the wilderness air and confined in this jail where he would stay until he was eventually beheaded at the whim of the king's wife and daughter. And he was in jail because he'd spoken against the king who had um, divorced his own wife and, and taken the wife of his brother. And as John the Baptist sat in prison, he, he thought about the prophecies that God had given him about Jesus Christ. And then he thought about the news that he was receiving about what Jesus was up to and what Jesus was doing. And John just wasn't too sure about how this was all lining up. You see, John had preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And he preached it with urgency because he was saying that judgment is on its way. In Matthew chapter 3 he had said the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He had said I baptise you with water for repentance but after me will come someone who is more powerful than I whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that's where most of us stop our reading there. But he goes on it talks about Jesus still and he says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That is what John the Baptist had preached. And John had thought that his younger cousin, Jesus, was the one that he was preaching about. He had thought that Jesus was this one. And yet, when John's disciples brought to him word of what Jesus was up to, he wasn't so sure anymore. You see, Jesus wasn't judging. He was healing. He wasn't swinging the axe. He was washing feet. He wasn't separating. He was seeking. And John looked at all of this and it just didn't add up to him and he started to doubt. And these doubts nagged him and nagged him and nagged him until eventually he sent his disciples to go and see Jesus and get some answers. And they went to Jesus and they said, um, are you the one? Are you the one who was to come or should we expect somebody else? 
John's asking, did I have it right? Or should I be looking for somebody else? Sometimes we can all get doubts. Even John the Baptist had doubts. And when Jesus gave John his answer, it was a typical Jesus type of answer. He didn't just give a simple yes or a simple no. Have you ever noticed that with Jesus? He'd, usually when he'd give somebody an answer, it's something that you'd have to really think about. Sometimes he'd tell a parable and you'd have to really think, oh, okay. But in this case, he made John think about it and he pointed John's disciples towards the evidence and John could go to his own Bible, the Old Testament, and check it out for himself. And you know what? When we do that, when we search for the answers in the Scriptures ourselves, when we search for the truth in God's Word ourselves rather than just having it spoon-fed to us, and when we find those answers in the Scriptures ourselves, that builds a strong faith. When God reveals it to you direct, it builds a strong faith. A faith that we've discovered by looking at the evidence and listening to God rather than just taking somebody else's word for it. Because if you just start taking somebody else's word for it, then there's always going to be room for doubts. What, what, what if old mate didn't tell me the right thing? And then when you hear another preacher tell you something different, it's go, oh, who, who can I trust? And I urge you, everything that you learn from me, don't just take my word for it. Go to the Bible. Check it out. Is the whole overall story that God tells us in the Bible showing this to be truth or error? And, and in doing that, you will develop a faith that will withstand the test of time. And so John, Jesus gave, gave them the evidence. He said, you go back and tell John what you've seen. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. That's what these disciples of John had seen and these very acts of Jesus were actually fulfilling ancient prophecy right before their eyes and they hadn't realised it until now. Hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah had said that these things would happen and now they were. They saw it. Evidence evidence that Jesus was the one. And so they had their answer for John. John wasn't wrong about Jesus. John had already made his decision about Jesus. He was just then starting to have a few little doubts. You see, when Jesus came to be baptised by him in the River Jordan, John knew that he was the one. He said so. And John prophesied and preached the need for repentance because the time was near. The Messiah was coming and he believed the Messiah was coming to judge. You know what? John was right, but he just had his timing a little bit wrong. Something that John didn't realise and something that Jesus clarified is Jesus is coming twice. When Jesus began his ministry, John was expecting Jesus to be doing the things that in fact Jesus will be doing when he comes the second time. And so John began to doubt. How's that, eh? Is John the Baptist doubting? Do you not feel so bad about yourself? Because all of us have times when we doubt. Even John the Baptist, a great prophet of God, doubted. When God acted differently to how John expected, the doubts began to niggle and so often the seeds of doubt that we have begin to surface 
when we can't see or understand what God is doing. When things happen in life that really shake us, really shake our faith. The death of a child. When the clouds refuse to yield their rain. When our work becomes a disappointment. When our relationship with our husband or our wife comes under stress. When our friends depart us. In times like these, sometimes we can begin to question why. Why? God, what are you doing? Are you even real? What's happening? When we feel that God is behaving in a very ungodlike way, that's when I start to doubt. There you go, there's a confession for you. Even I have times of doubt. I don't, I don't doubt in God. I don't doubt in Jesus Christ. But sometimes I think, what's going on? This direction. God, are you really in control? And Jesus' answer is a bit like CSI. Follow the evidence. These things are supposed to happen. You've got a little picture there, Robin, just a little, little cartoon. Oh, that doesn't have the whole thing. Caption on it. We've got the murder weapon and the motive. Now, if we can just establish the time of death. Sometimes the evidence is right there. We've just got to follow that evidence. Isn't God good? The way that he deals with us, even though John had doubts, Jesus didn't criticise him. In fact, he did quite the opposite. He turned to the people around him and he told them, hey, John's a good guy. Jesus made it really clear that he and John were both agents of the one God. He said, John's a prophet. John's more than a prophet. The great prophets of old foretold that John was going to come. Now, I've been racking my brain. I can't think of any other prophet of God that was foretold by another prophet. I could be wrong there. But John certainly was. And it foretold that John would come heralding the arrival of someone even greater. And that's what made John a great man of God. Not John himself, but the one that he heralded, the one that he announced was coming. Jesus Christ and Jesus said among those born of women there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist then Jesus threw in something there that's a bit of a surprise as important and great and blessed as John the Baptist is the least of those in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist See, John hadn't yet entered the kingdom of heaven. John didn't have faith in Jesus Christ. Although he did all of these great things for God, even though he was even languishing in prison for God, he had not yet put his faith in Jesus Christ. And so although he was great, he wasn't yet part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I find that pretty confronting. And it reminds me of the story of John Wesley's conversion. John Wesley was the leader of, of, the, um, of the Methodist church. I guess he's the founder of it. Somebody here is named after him. <laughs> John Wesley spent five years in seminary. He was a minister in the Church of England for about ten years. 
and then he became a missionary. His life was exemplary. He'd get up at 4am and he'd pray for two hours and then he'd read the Bible for an hour and then he'd go to the jails and the hospitals to minister to all manner of people. He taught, he prayed, he helped and he did this for years. But then one night when his life was in peril, the ship that he was on was in danger of sinking, he was full of fear and it, what's going to happen to me when I die? On one side of the ship there was a group of men who were singing hymns and he asked them, how can you be singing when this very night you're going to die? And they replied, hey, if this ship goes down, we're going to go to be with the Lord. She's all good. And John was, how can you know that? And he went away from him, shaking his head. How can you know that? What, what have they done that I haven't? I came to convert the heathen, but who's going to convert me? Get this, this is a minister. He'd been to Bible college. Get up every morning, 4 a.m. so that he could pray and read the Bible. What's going to happen to me when I die? Well, in the providence of God, that ship made it back to England. Wesley went to London and he found his way to Aldersgate Street in a small chapel. And there he heard a man reading a sermon that had been written 200 years earlier. Today we'd say that was stale material. And irrelevant. We wouldn't even bother looking at it. But it was a sermon which had been written by Martin Luther. And this sermon described what real faith was. Real faith is trusting in Jesus Christ rather than trusting in our own good works for salvation. And it hit him. Wesley suddenly realised that he'd been on the wrong track all his life. And that night he wrote these words. About a quarter before nine... While he was describing the change that God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And that night, John Wesley entered the kingdom of heaven. It wasn't when he went to Bible college. It wasn't when he became a minister. It wasn't when he went off to be a missionary. It wasn't when he got up at 4am in the morning to do all of his good works for God. It was that night when he stopped trusting in himself, when he stopped trusting in his own good works and and when he started trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist, well, he'd done many good things for God. And in God's name, he was locked up in prison. But he hadn't yet entered the kingdom of heaven. You can't help but be challenged by that. And as I read this, I find both encouragement and warning. I find warning because many people today are a part of the church because its ideals resonate with theirs. They find the church to be an organisation that might teach their morals and they want to pass it on to their kids. Um, might be a place that carries out good works and so they join up for this, a bit like a service club. They get the kids baptised because they need a bit of religion but they never actually put their faith in Christ. And so there's warning here. The kingdom of heaven is unattainable without faith in Christ. 
Have you got that? The kingdom of heaven is unattainable without faith in Christ. John the Baptist couldn't attain it unless he found faith. And neither can we. But here's the encouragement. Faith is made possible by the revelation of God. God reveals himself to us so that we can have faith. We don't have to try harder to believe. You can't go, well, I'm just going to try harder and believe. That's not going to do it. We just have to accept what God has already shown us. God graciously reveals himself to those he chooses to reveal himself to. And in fact, it's often not the high and mighty that he reveals himself to, but the lowly and the outcast. It's often not the learned or the supposedly wise that he reveals himself to, but simple, normal folk who come to him with the faith of a child. Jesus said, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. If you know God, it's because Jesus Christ has revealed himself to you. God reveals himself so that we can have faith in Jesus Christ. And did you know that's what's happening right now? As we read God's word, as we study what God's word is saying, God is making himself known to you. God's making himself known to me. God is revealing himself to us. Why? Why does God reveal himself? So that God can be glorified? Yes, but it's more than that. Does he reveal himself so that we can come to faith in Jesus Christ? Yes, but there's a key component that must also go with that. And that's the R word that we were talking about before. Repentance. The revelation of God requires us to respond with repentance. There's a lot of R's in that. It's not like the three R's are actually only one R. Reading, writing and arithmetic. There's only one R in those. But God reveals himself. So the revelation of God requires us to respond with repentance. There's the four R's. Now that's the four R's I want you to go home with today. The revelation of God requires us to respond with repentance. See, John the Baptist, he preached repentance. And, and he had thought that with the coming of Jesus Christ, well, that would end the era of repentance and begin the era of judgment. He thought Jesus was going to step straight in and start judging. He was wrong. And I think John understood very well that those who hadn't repented, well, it wouldn't go well for them. Because when Jesus comes in judgment, the unrepentant will be judged and the unrepentant will be punished. John expected him to, to, to stop preaching repentance straight away and to start judging. Um, I, for one, am glad that that's not what happened. In 2 Peter chapter 3, 
tells us the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some, some understand slowness. And I think John was thinking, hey, Jesus, get your act into gear. You haven't started yet. But time to get going. John thought he was slow. It says, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. When Jesus came last time, he did not come to judge, he came to save. And he has been delaying his return, revealing himself to the world and giving us ample opportunity to repent. But when Jesus comes next time, there's not going to be any more waiting. And Jesus was very clear about that. It's going to happen. Could be any day now. I didn't know when I wrote this sermon, I actually thought about this. I don't know if I'm even going to get a chance to preach this sermon. Because Jesus could come before then. And we're told that God's word will keep getting preached right up until the moment that Jesus arrives. Right across the world. And that's why we're told to live every day as if it is today that Jesus is returning. Our task is as God reveals himself in his ways, as he reveals himself to us, our task is to repent. Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, so he's, so he's talking to a couple of local towns, Chorazin and Bethsaida, and, and then he says, but if they'd been performed in, in Tyre and Sidon, a couple of foreign lands, then they would have repented long ago. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, another local town, Will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that have been performed in you were performed in Sodom, now we all know that Sodom is the city that God destroyed, rained fire down upon it. Um, but if the miracles that have been performed in you had been performed in Sodom, then it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it would be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Why did Jesus say these things to these places? Because Jesus had come into these places. He performed all of these miracles in their midst and they failed to do something important. What was it? They failed to, our word, repent. Do you know that's why Jesus performed his miracles? Have you been taught that that's why Jesus performed the miracles, why he healed the sick, why he raised the dead, why he gave sight to the blind? He did this so people would repent. John the Baptist preached, repent. Jesus preached, repent. And he backed it up with his miracles. But they all had their excuses, just like we do today. How will it go for Australia, do you think, when Jesus returns? 
We've been given ample notice. We've heard the message of John the Baptist. We've heard the message of Jesus Christ. If you think about locally in this town, for the whole history of St George, there has been God's preachers in this town, all warning, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. How terrible judgment day will be for those who do not repent. But what is repentance? I said, I said to the kids before, what's repentance? Being sorry enough to stop. Repentance means to change our direction. It's like if you're walking in this direction and go, I repent of that. So you walk in this direction. It means to change our mind toward God. It means to agree with God that his way is best and to follow him in his ways. Repentance means we have to have a change of mind, a change of will. Repentance isn't just something we feel, it's also something we do. Repentance is not just saying sorry. The word sorry is cheap. Repentance is what God requires. Now I'm going to tell you something which is an offence to many. Faith without repentance isn't real faith at all. Because faith leads to repentance. And repentance leads to faith. The two must go together. Repentance and faith interlock. Faith demonstrates repentance. Repentance demonstrates faith. Now we live in an era where that's not a very popular message to preach. Not many people want to hear the word repentance. Not many people want to hear the call to repent. Fifty-five times in the New Testament we can find the word repent or repentance. And yet in many gatherings of Christians right across Australia today we'll never hear that word, repent. The story is told of a, uh, a new preacher, people that, that this church had called and, and the preacher gets up and he preaches his very first message. He says, repent, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. And um, that was the basis of the message and, and at the end of the message, and at the end of church, he's going out the door and people were shaking and saying, oh, wonderful message, pastor, wonderful message, wonderful message. And they all went home. The next week, he gets to do his second sermon. And his message was, repent, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. And um, someone started thinking, oh, I think I've heard this before. Oh, I mustn't have. Anyway, oh, lovely sermon, Pastor, as they walked out the door. Next Sunday, the message was, Repent! Repent! The kingdom of God is at hand! And we have heard this before. I think we might have had it last week. The following week, the message was, Repent! Repent! The kingdom of God is at hand! And people were saying, We're getting a bit sick of this. Well, by the sixth Sunday of the same message over and over again, finally they called a delegation together. We're going to get a couple of the elders to go and talk to this new minister. We can't just have the same thing over and over again. And and, talking to the minister, and yes, the minister was aware that he'd preached the same message for six weeks in a row. 
Yes, yes, the minister is quite able to preach another message. Yes, yes, the minister would love to preach another message. When? Well, just as soon as you repent. Then we'll move on to the next one. Many, many are offended by repentance. Why is repentance such an offence? Well, to be frank, for many people in our society, there's nothing that we want to change of our life because the word repentance has to mean change. And many of us, we don't want to change. The rich, the self-confidence, the energetic, the leader, the celebrity, to these the message of repentance is an absolute nonsense. They like things the way they are. And we can become so full of ourselves, hey, don't judge me. Don't judge me. You think I need to change? The message of repentance is an offence to many. And that's why those who are most likely to come to the Lord Jesus Christ are those who are at the end of themselves. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for yourselves for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I read that and I can see Jesus appealing to people who are at the end of themselves. They realise I'm desperate, I'm empty, I'm hopeless without God. I need a change. I'm ready to repent. One of the first messages that I ever preached at a Bush Disciple service was God calls nobodies. And he does. You don't have to be perfect to come to God. You don't have to be strong or confident or wealthy or smart or good. You don't have to be a good singer. You don't have to be sinless. You don't have to be any of these things to come to God. Come if you're tired. Come if you're burdened. Come if you're weak. Come if you're in need of rest. Come if you are at the end of yourself. Jesus said, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Some of us get offended that God pardons sinners. What? That God would forgive a child molester? That can cause an offence in many of us. But if somebody has done that, truly repents, then yes, he will. He will. Some of us get offended that God is delaying his judgement. God, the world is so terrible. Come, judge. Set it all right. But I think most of us are offended that when God reveals himself to us, that he requires us to repent. He requires me to repent. He requires you to repent. Turn your back on your old life and follow Christ. Learn from Christ. We've spent enough time learning from the world. If you're honest with yourself, most of us, the, the, the way that we choose to function in life is what we've learnt from the world. 
We've spent enough time learning from the world. We've spent enough time learning from our mistakes. We've spent enough time learning from greed, learning from pride, learning from prejudices and selfishness. And Jesus says, learn from me. Learn from Christ. Trust in Christ. Put your faith in Christ and rely on him alone.